Welcome to another virtual author chat at the Poison Pen Bookstore. I'm John Charles, and today the Poison Pen is quadruply blessed to have with us four amazing historical mystery writers from Crooked Lane who are going to talk about their latest book. Before we begin, our authors today include Kate Belly, whose new book is Opulence and Ashes, Emily J. Edwards, whose latest book is the so I'm sorry, whose latest book is Viviana Valentine and the Ticking Clock. S.K. Golden, whose new book is The Socialist, Socialize, Socialist would be a totally different book, Socialize, Guide to Death and Dating, and Catherine Shellman, whose latest book is Murder at Midnight. The Poison Pen does have copies of all these books in stock or on order, and we would be happy to hold one for you or put more, one or more in the mail. Just give us a call or go online to the Poison Pen Bookstore. Now I'd like to welcome Emily, Kate, Sarah, and Catherine. Thank you so much for having us. Thank yeah. you for joining us today. My first question for authors is I'm always fascinated how they got to where they're at because there's a story behind becoming a published author. So I'm going to ask each of you to tell us a little bit about yourself prior to becoming published and what your initial path to publication was like. And why don't we start with Emily? Oh, golly. Um, well, I went I went to college with the express intent of becoming an author. Uh, and then I took a very long route to getting here, I guess, like pretty much everybody else. Uh, I was I worked in publicity for a little while in Los Angeles. I was a copywriter for a clothing company whose clothes I would never, ever wear. And then I was a wine spirits writer for many, many years, radio producer. And uh, then I got tired of doing that and got to start writing books. And that's really about it. <laughs> that's interesting. Um, Sarah, what about you? So um, for me, I started writing when I was a kid. I was writing fan fiction with my friends. Um, I did not go to college for writing. I went to school for health and human services, which I almost forgot what my degree was in just now. Um, I got married really young. I had kids really young. And I, I didn't start writing my own stuff until uh, probably about seven years ago. I was thinking really hard about it when I was on bed rest with the twins. And then sort of from that, I started writing and pursuing an agent and then landed here. Great. Kate, what about you? So I um, also didn't study writing in college. Um, I studied art history, and then I got graduate degrees in art history. And I am, that is what I do in my day job. I am talking to you from my, uh, my office on a college campus, <laughs> where I'm a professor and, uh, and run the college gallery. Um, no, in the early 2000s, I was sort of I was living in New York City and fell into a friend group, a lot of whom were writers, and they were mostly writing literary fiction. And I was a sort of voracious reader of genre fiction, mystery, and romance. And at the time, I was really gobbling down the Bridgerton series, Julia Quinn's Bridgerton series that we all know now from Netflix, if you didn't know the books before. You know, I was reading them as they were being written. And I thought, well, this is what I want to write. You know, I know all these other people who are writers. Maybe I should take a stab at writing. And so I started writing a romance series, but set in Gilded Age, New York City, um, for a lot of reasons that I can go into later. I was interested in, in class tensions and, um, you know, that's sort of the same kind of opulence to play on the title of my latest book that uh, you find in the Regency period, but setting it in America and my academic specialty, I'm a 19th century American specialist. 
And um, I wrote the book. It took me a long time. It took me like a dozen years to finish my first manuscript and then um, pursued getting an agent and got one. And we tried to sell it as a romance and it did not sell. <laughs> <laughs> but Crooked Lane um, said, you know what? We actually want, we love this. Can you flip it and make it a mystery with a sub, you know, little romance thread as opposed to a romance with a mystery thread. And so I rewrote the whole book and they bought the series. Yeah, that's amazing. Catherine, what about you? I think uh, like like everyone here, I had a bit of a twisting path to becoming a writer. I was about six years old when I think I first told my parents I wanted to write books when I grew up. And I always had in the back of my mind that that was what I would do professionally eventually. Um, but I went through a number of other sort of starter careers before that happened. Um, out of high school, I started working in political consulting and did that when I paid for a lot of college for me doing that job. Um, and then after I graduated, I continued that for a while until I realized I did not want to make a career out of politics. <laughs> um, I actually got my degree in theater and I worked as an actor and dancer for a while because I trained as a dancer for years. And I loved that. I loved performing, but I did not love the lifestyle that came with it. Um, I wouldn't, being a writer is not a whole lot more stable than being an actor in some ways, but it's at least a little more self-directed, I think. And I, I appreciated that aspect of it. So I ended up at a, I think it was a New Year's Eve party with a number of friends and a friend of a friend was talking to me and he had recently left music. He had started as a musician, but realized that what he really loved was managing and supporting other artists and musicians. And we got to talking and I realized that I was feeling very similarly and that I didn't want to keep acting. And he said, well, what do you want to be doing, you know, 10 years from now? And I said, well, I want to be, I want to have a, like a million books published. And he said, well, how many have you written? I said, oh no. <laughs> so I realized I needed to start writing books very seriously if that's what I wanted to be doing. So I, I started doing that. And the book that I started working on after that conversation became the first Lily Adler mystery. Um, and it was a bit of a, a twisting path to get there. Like Kate, I did not know I was writing a mystery when I first started. Uh, eventually a dead body showed up and I realized that I was. So that was that was a very good moment because it worked a lot better than what I'd been writing before. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of us have a very weird path to end up where we are. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. What can you tell us about your series character and your latest work? And why don't we start with you, Catherine? All right. I write the Lily Adler mysteries, which are set in Regency London. Um, Lily is a, in this book, not so recent, but in the first one, a very recent widow who um, is trying to figure out what she's going to do with her life now that her her plan A, essentially, her plan to be you know, married and create a family with the husband she loved, and he wanted to go into politics, and she had a very clear idea of what her life was going to look like. And when he died, she had to come up with a plan B. And she stumbled over that in the form of a dead body in a friend's garden and uh, ended up getting caught up in, in figuring out what happened there. And like so many amateur sleuths, she has an unusually high track record of ending up in the presence of dead bodies. So that happens again in book four, Murder at Midnight, um, which is my most recent one. And this one is a Christmas mystery. So it's set in the winter of 1816 when Lily is at a Christmas Eve ball, or not Christmas Eve ball, but Christmas ball with a number of uh, her in-laws and friends and neighbors and relatives, and there's a giant snowstorm. And they get stranded in an old country house and no one can come or go. And in the morning they wake up and one of the guests is dead. And because of the storm, it had to be someone in the house who committed the murder. So uh, Lily ends up 
having to help the local magistrate who is also fortunately snowed in with them figure out what happened uh, before anything else uh, goes wrong or before the snow melts and everyone gets to leave. Well, Kate, what can you tell us about your Gilded Gotham series and your latest in that? Well, the series is set in Gilded Age, New York, late 1880s. The latest book um, is in 1890s. So we've moved forward a couple of years. The first book is set in 1888. And in the first book, Deception by Gaslight, my um, protagonist, my female protagonist, Genevieve Stewart, is a member of the Astra 400, a society girl that she was um, very famously jilted at the altar um, when she was quite young, you know, at marriageable age. And now in her late 20s, she has forged a career for herself as a journalist. Um, so she's loosely based on Nellie Bly. Um, part of the reason, again, I wanted to write in this period was because there are more opportunities for women in the 1880s and 90s in America um, than previous years. And I wanted that to be sort of true to the story. And um, she is trying to make a name for herself though as an actual investigative journalist as many women were trying to do in that era. And so she's chasing down a story. There's a Robin Hood of the Lower East Side in the first book who is um, stealing from the rich and giving uh, to the poor. And he writes about this in letters to the newspaper that she works for. And uh, one night when she is sort of chasing some leads down a literal alley, um, the male protagonist literally jumps into her path from a fire escape. And then she sees him the next night at a society ball and realizes he's not sort of a street tough like she thought, but he is also a member of the very wealthy society. And um, it goes from there. They wind up teaming up together to try and solve these these the, the these thefts which also jewel thefts which evolve into um murders so in the most recent book which is book four opulence and ashes um the relationship has progressed the um mysteries have progressed <laughs> they've solved several together and in this particular book as the title ashes connotes um there's a series of arsons that they have to solve now um all of my books there's sort of a slight social justice theme that run through them and in this book, the first um, arson attack and first building that burns down is um, in a house that was established in Brooklyn for young women of color who were lured from the south to the north um, with the promises of jobs, but then were um, actually tried to pressured to go into the sex trade. And these are based on real places and the real one didn't actually burn down, but in my book it does. And that sort of, again, sets off a, a bunch of mysteries that they have to solve. Yeah. Yeah. Sarah, what about your Pinnacle Hotel series? What do we need to know and what's the latest adventure? So those books, the Pinnacle Hotel series or the Socialite's Guide to Murder or the Socialite's Guide to Death and Dating, which I, by the way, don't feel too bad about the socialist slip up because <laughs> Katrina McPherson was, she wrote it out that on a blog post and had to fix it. So don't <laughs> don't worry um, it would be a different series but... it would be totally different yeah but <laughs> um it's about evelyn and she is a uh a socialite she's an heiress um in the in the 1950s the late 1950s 1958 um to be precise in manhattan her father owns a hotel and she lives in it i pitched the book to my agent before i started writing it as eloise at the plaza all grown up and solving mysteries so <laughs> she has that kind of vibe where she just she's getting into trouble um but she's also 
struggling with anxiety and uh, agoraphobia, and you see her try to get better in these books. We have she has an analyst, and she's working through it, and like a little service dog. We don't call it a service dog in the book, but that's what the dog is. And um, she seems to uh, she's very good at finding things. One of the things that she's good at finding is is bodies. Um, so the first book, it was that, uh, painting went missing and then the artist was dead. And in the second book, there's a judge who, uh, dies. And at first it looks like it's an overdose. And then it's like, oh, it was intentional. So that's where we are. She's solving the mysteries while trying to get better with her mental health. And there's some backsliding a little bit, but it's getting better. It's eventually, I don't know, (laughs) because I'm working on the third one and it's, she's, it's fine. It's like, you know, there's always ups and downs. <laughs> yeah, there's always a challenge when someone's dealing with um, a mental health issue. It's not always a straight path. Exactly. Yeah. Emily, what about your Girl Friday series? So I think the collective title kind of lets you know that our Girl Friday is Viviana Valentine, and she is the secretary to a uh, New York City's finest private detective, Tommy Fortuna, in 1950. And so the first book starts out and Tommy's gotten a case and he set off on a wild goose chase and then there's a dead body in the office. So she, he is immediately the police prime suspect and it's just Viviana's Valentine's job to uh, clear his name and solve all the crimes. Uh, in the second one, she is promoted to being a private investigator herself, still working through the underbelly of New York, of post-World War II underbelly of Manhattan. And uh, she is sent up the river to Westchester County where it's very Tony. And she also works with a a snowed in locked mansion mystery where uh, she has to uncover a a Russian spy. And then in the third one uh, coming out soon or possibly out depending on when this airs, uh, she and Tommy are going down to New Year's, Eve, New Year's Eve to ring in 1951, and they witness a murder. So all of this is a little less uh, flashy, and they're very crass and curse a lot and, you know, working class, really, really fun sort of investigation into that noir dirty aspect of New York City that, that I just love so much. Fascinating. Um, Emily, with your series, what I enjoyed about it was how you used, in a way, fashion to illuminate and introduce readers to different aspects of your series character and other characters. Was this because you wanted to become involved in fashion early on in your career? Oh, absolutely. I had grandiose dreams of being a fashion writer when I was in my late teens and 20s. And then I graduated right into the folding of every single magazine known to man. So that was no longer a career that I could pursue. But I really, really love clothes. I really, really love food. And I love the way that people interact with clothing and food as the the tangible ways that you you interact with class and money, and especially, you know, in the highly immigrant you know, communities that Viviana is walking through, where it's brand people who are brand new to Manhattan, but also first generation. And so those things start to get diluted. And it's just my, that's my favorite way of characterizing people uh, in the communities that she's walking through. Each of you have chosen your historical time period for a specific reason. And um, I'd like you to talk a little bit about the research involved in um, creating that sense of time and place. And also, what surprised you the most about that time period when you were doing the research? Why don't we go back to Catherine? 
get started? Oh, that's a very funny question because one of the reasons that I chose the Regency when I was writing was because I thought I knew so much about that era and wouldn't have to do a ton of research. <laughs> and turned out that that was a, a very mistaken impression because what I really discovered once I started writing is that it was an era that had this very opulent, elegant sort of surface presentation, that which is what we learn about a lot because so much of the sort of the, the cultural touchstones that have been passed down, for example, the work of Jane Austen, they deal with the upper classes, they deal with, you know, oh, people are worried about marriage and, you know, how many thousands of pounds a year they have. But underneath that, there's a lot of really, really grim social tension happening in terms of, you know, the role of women and immigrant communities um, coming through the British Empire, either permanently and staying in England or coming for a brief period of time and then leaving as part of trade delegations or against their will in the case of slaves who were brought in previous centuries. Um, there's a huge, it's a time of huge transformation in terms of industrialization of certain jobs in England and how that was affecting the way the upper and lower classes interacted with each other. Um, so you have this, you know, this very elegant surface presentation, and then there's all these, these tensions underneath. And that has ended up being a lot of fun to play with while still getting to do sort of the, the mystery of manners that I had originally envisioned when I was first writing. It's very fun to have that, but then also to bring in, you know, those little, those juicier bits from time to time. If I'm correct, you chose 1816 for your new book for a very specific meteor meteorological reason. Yeah, so the 1816 was called The Year Without a Summer because the year before there had been a giant volcanic eruption in um, the, I believe it was in Indonesia, what we today call Indonesia. Um, and it had been, I think, the biggest volcanic eruption in close to 2000 years in the world, just based on various meteorological records that scientists have been able to go back and, and um, uncover. And this just the huge ash cloud that resulted from it changed weather patterns across the entire globe. So there were, you know, there, there were much lower temperatures, there were uh, places freezing over in Europe in the middle of August in 1816. There were unexpected snowstorms. That was a year that a lot of crops failed all across the world. So there were people that were having severe economic hardships. Um, but I particularly needed that those changes in weather and patterns because as much as uh, various snowbound mysteries might lead you to believe otherwise, England is not really known for its snowstorms. <laughs> and it's sudden blizzards that can are big enough to trap people in a house together. Um, so I needed a really good reason for that to be happening. And luckily, my first three books were set in 1815. So I could just fast forward a little bit to 1816 and say, oh, there's a blizzard because there was a giant volcanic eruption. And it it made me feel a little bit better about including that as a particular plot device because I knew that I wanted to have everyone snowed in together and unable to leave. Have you found any particular useful resources when researching your time period? And has anything really surprised you about the Gilded Age? Well, thank goodness for the digitization of historic newspapers, because I spend a lot of time on 
historic newspaper sites, reading primary sources, and um, that's where I get a lot of information from. And there's really good secondary sources out there also about my time period, um, which like Catherine, I was felt pretty familiar with, which is part of why I picked it. It was a write what you know situation. Um, specific, there are specific things that have surprised me, you know, little things. Um, my third book, Treachery on 10th Street, takes place largely in Coney Island, or there's some very pivotal things that happen in Coney Island. So that was super fun to dive deep and see what was happening in Coney Island in 1889. It was kind of right, it was already a playground, but it was before the sort of heyday that we know of it, so that you, that again exists in popular imagination. Um, but there was stuff there still. And so getting all those specifics were really fun. Um, I used example, again, for a plot device, once I found it, I thought, well, I have to use this. And it was surprising. I'd never heard of it, a giant um, elephant that was a hotel that existed, um, but giant. You could go up and you could stay in rooms in the elephant. And you know there were things I found like documentation of a woman who actually slid down the trunk um, and was rescued. I, I use that device, that story in the book, um, that kind of surprising thing. You know, the prevalence of things like cocktails and rooftop bars and things that we think of as more modern, um, more contemporary 20th century inventions I was finding all in the 1880s and 90s that New Yorkers were enjoying just as they might enjoy them today. So it's been real fun to incorporate some of those elements, things that are gone, the, uh, the elephant burned down. Um, I was very lucky that it was actually in existence still in 1889. It burned down a few years later. Um, <laughs> and then things that are, you know, gone and things that are still happening in New York that that were going on then. That's great. Sarah, what about you? I'm guessing that the way hotels were run when your books are set are a little bit different than today. How do you research those kinds of things? What was different that surprised you? in general I mean you get the elevator lifts and you know it's not like it's not like you booked online you had to call and whatever but yeah the for me I do a lot of newspapers.com um I have like uh a JC Penny catalog from the time I have books I've read a, a memoir not too long ago about people who lived in specifically 1958 so I can't remember the title of it I'm sorry <laughs> if you give me a minute I might be able to find it but and then there were like um I got a book, I think a, a magazine put it together, but people could send in their stories and their pictures and their own like personal life stuff from the 50s. So I have that. That's that's a lot of fun to go through. Um, and for me, because it's 58, I can stream media that took place then. So to get an, a general vibe or whatever aesthetic, I can put on a Marilyn Monroe movie or uh, an episode of Dragnet even. So um, it feels like cheating, but I do, <laughs> I do a lot of <laughs> deep dives into newspapers.com. And the, you know, for me, like the weirdest things are how much jello was used in food like we were, oh. yeah, so much jello back then that was weird. And I didn't know about, because Evelyn is a big Elvis fan, I didn't know that Elvis was in the army until I was working on the first book. And I was like, oh, that feels like something I should have known. But I'm not a big Elvis fan, so it's okay that I didn't know that. But yeah, in the second book, he's stationed in Germany. She mentions it. So yeah, so that's it. That's great. Emily, what surprised you about being a female Girl Friday? I think the most interesting aspect of writing something that's set in like living memory for a lot of people is that um, one, I get 
something's wrong and I'm sorry, I'm, I mess up sometimes. And that's like the most embarrassing thing in the world. Um, but also what people think is true and what is actually true for the era is entirely different. And so, you know, you'll reference technology that absolutely existed, but people think that there's no way that it existed or, um, 1950 was very technologically different from 1958 or 1959 and just the astronomical growth that happened in our understanding of time back then uh between 50 and like 1960 which is like kind of when Mad Men is set it's totally different it's a wildly different world and so one of the big challenges of setting something in the early 1950s is that it is not the same world as the late 1950s and it's so much more like the 40s uh you know but also you're, you're post-war so it's very different more people are struggling with PTSD and and the outcome and the economic struggles of coming out of war or being a, a new immigrant to America. And it's just wildly, wildly different world. And so that, that's been the most fun aspect of it is just poking and prodding. And also because New York City is undergoing such a humongous transformation in the post-war years. Each one of my books, I didn't plan this, but has a reference to, you know, Robert Moses and what he's doing to the city and the people who live there, you know, the political aspects of what they were trying to do to chase people out of the city and into the suburbs and things like that. So it's a very, very interesting time period to get into. And it's super depressing too, because if you think of now New York City now versus New York City when I was a kid and like the 80s and 90s versus what was happening in the 50s it's so political and so depressing and it's just uh, mind-boggling to think of how a lot of people interact with New York City now is not the New York City that existed for the past you know up until 20 years ago this is a brand new New York City and you can't function with that as your idea of New York City wow um, let's go broader, and um, I would like you each to talk a little bit about your writing process, because I know, at least from a reader's perspective, when you're writing a mystery, I would think you have to know who did it, um, how to plant the clues, what clues you want to let the reader in on. It To me, it seems like a very structural kind of logical approach, but I've been amazed by the number of authors who say, no, I just sit down and wing it. So why don't we have you tell us about how you approach um, writing your mystery series? And we'll start with Emily. I am a pantser. Um, I do know what the end is. I do know who's dead and why. But other than that, I make it up. I don't plan at all. I do cheat a little bit because I give Viviana a very specific timeline to solve all the mysteries. She tries to do everything within a week or so. So each one of my chapters is a day that she's walking through and going through all of the sleuthing that she has to do. So that's my big cheat of just how does the mystery progress by a person whose job it is to solve a mystery. She's billing someone by the hour. She needs to account for everything and she's always on the case. So that's my big thing. And uh, I just kind of see where it goes and hopefully it ends up with the clues that I planted in the beginning of the story. Because if it doesn't, then I have to go back and rewrite a whole bunch of stuff. But other than that, that's really about it. I just start going. Yeah. What about you, Sarah? I'm a plotter. I, I do like um, Save the Cat. I have uh, something I learned a few years ago called the Plot Clock, which is just like a simplified version, version of Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey that I use too. Um, I like to uh, if, write out, not in like detail, nobody's ever going to see it by but me, but the actual murder scene, um, because then I can pick 
later on, like, what can she discover that happened here? What can she see that happened here? What, you know, have I, have I laid the groundwork enough? Um, but I am a plotter. And then it's mostly just sitting down and actually doing the work. I prefer drafting over editing, which is why I am a plotter, because when I don't plot and I've just written it, there's so much more revision that has to take place. And you got to edit everything anyway, but uh, there's less of it if I've plotted well enough. Well, and you know, <laughs> who's to say if it's well enough, but if I've done the work ahead of time, it saves me a little bit of work on the back end. So. What about you, Kate? Oh, I'm a plotter also. I have a you know background in academia. I like to have it all laid out. But that said, I am open to pantsing when it happens. Sometimes I have the general structure, but you know, for my first book, I actually didn't know who Robin Hood was going to be for a good three quarters of the book. Halfway through, I was like, okay, is it this character, this character, or this character? It could have been sort of a number of people um, in that book. And I've stayed pretty open to that. Sometimes I don't know exactly how it's going to end. I sort of write out three acts and the third act is a lot of things happen, you know, in my outline, you know, it literally says things happen and they figure stuff out, that sort of thing. And sometimes I need to write the first, you know, two thirds to figure out the last third. So loosely, I guess a little of both, but more of a plotter. Catherine? Sarah's comment about uh, outlining so that you don't have to do as much revision is so funny to me because I outline for the opposite reason. I outline because drafting is so stressful to me. <laughs> so I like to know exactly what I'm, not exactly what I'm going to be writing, but I'd like to know what I need to accomplish in a scene before I sit down and write it. The very first mystery book I ever wrote, The Body in the Garden, which was the first Lily Adler mystery, I did not outline before I wrote it. I just sat down. I'd never written a mystery before. I had no idea how to do it. And I ended up with a book and a half's worth of book. <laughs> it was 145,000 words. So I had to cut out about 50,000 words. Um, and I was just like, oh, that's a whole lot of drafting that I didn't need to do. So I tend to outline now. And I do think of my outline in a lot of ways as a first draft. I'll go through, you know, spend a, a week or more on it and just sit down and sort of go scene by scene in terms of figuring out what the characters need to do in terms of the mystery plot, but also in terms of their own personal arcs and how those fit together. That that said, you know, much like Kate, that doesn't mean that when I sit down to draft, I then just follow that and that's it beat by beat by beat. There's in the same way that when you write a first draft and then you're editing to your second draft, you add things in or you find tangents and things that you didn't expect to be there. Um, that'll happen to me when I'm drafting. I just finished uh doing the uh, draft of the third book in my uh, Jazz Age series. And the entire like big middle set piece wasn't in the outline at all. And it ended up being about three chapters long. And it was this huge dramatic uh, scene. And in the, in the outline, it just said, and they discovered this information. And I had no idea where or how they did it. Um, and how they did it ended up being totally different than I'd originally pictured. So I think I think for a lot of us, even if you say you're you're one way specifically, there's always a little bit of crossover between the the two. But I, you know, I'm sorry, Emily, you're you're alone in just going <laughs> straight for it, no seeing what happens completely. You have to pick what works for you, I guess, yes. as an author. Um, my next question, I'll open it up to whoever wants to um, put their thoughts in. You you're all writing series. Some of you are further down the series road than others. 
but does it get easier for you as an author with each book that you complete or does it get more challenging or what is it like writing a series? Um, I, I have the same sort of self-doubts every time, typically at the same points in every book. Uh, the first act goes okay. By the time I'm nearing that middle moment, I start to go, this is the worst thing anybody's ever written and I don't know what I'm doing. Once I push pack that, push past that and I get to the third act, I'm like, okay, I've got, I can figure, I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. I can, I can go forward right now because I've been with Evelyn now I'm working on her third book. I do know how she would react. I do know how, what she would say. I, I, I know what she would feel. So that is helpful. Um, I know who she is as a character. Uh, not like, I don't want to say like, she's real to me, but a little, you know, a little bit, like I can kind of guess what she's going to, what she would do. So, um, that is helpful. And I know what amount of time I need to give myself to finish something. And I know that I'm never going to hit the goal that I think I'm going to hit when I'm going to hit it. I need extra time every time. So that's good to know about me as a person. I think that's a really good point about knowing your characters, the more you've written them, because so much of figuring out what happens in a book, I think is I've given my characters these circumstances. How would they react in a way that fits with what I've already established about who they are and how they see the world and how they see themselves. So once you have that, I think it can make things like like plotting a lot easier. Um, but I would agree that the process of actually sitting down and writing, in some ways it almost feels harder uh, with each subsequent book because you you know more about what you don't know. I think the the first book or two I sat down and wrote, I was like, oh, this is fantastic. And then, you know, you get revisions back and you're like, oh, it, it wasn't quite so fantastic. And I'm able to see the problems more as I'm writing now. Um, but you also have a bigger toolbox for fixing them, I think. So, you know, it it you go back and forth between whether you're you're having an easier time or not, but I think the self-doubt is is always there at some point in the first draft and maybe the second and third and fourth too. <laughs> I think the hardest part for me is just upping the ante where you're, you know, you're starting out with a murder mystery. So already you're dealing with the worst crime possible and then you just have, but without being salacious about it later on in the books where you don't want to do anything crass or crude to you know that might that go against my you know morality of you know because I have very strict rules for the world that Viviana lives in like I none of like assault is not a, like um you know sexual assault is not a crime in my books it's just not going to happen and I'm just that's a hard offense rule for me but that is such a common crime you know both in the world and in mystery novels that like I've already like taken a tool out of my tool kit for that but that's okay because that's I it, you know so it's like for me the hardest part is trying to find ways to connect with people emotionally for the crimes that are being committed without crossing any of my hard and fast rules about things that I'm comfortable writing or things that I want to necessarily subject my readers to reading. Mm -hmm. Those are good points. Um, and Emily, similarly, I, it's part of why I turned to arson for book four, because I was, I was like, so how many murders are these folks going to encounter? And in book four, you know, there are some murders that both uh, related to, and, you know, well, no, they're all related to the arsons, but, um, I wanted there to be a different 
thread of crime. And when you're writing crime fiction, I think that is, you, it can get very repetitive in a way. And especially when you're writing a series, you know, these are the same characters. It's, you know, you think about um, something like Louise Penny's, you know, uh, Three Pines series and you're like, or her Mangamash series. And you're like, gosh, this is the tiniest little town. How many people can die? You know, she's on like book 20 now and they're still really good reads, but it's a lot of people dying in a small space. And so similarly, I'm like these, you know, at least um, again, Emily, you've got sort of the, they're, they're detectives, they're sort of right there in it. Like, you know, my, I have a journalist and a millionaire, you know, how many dead bodies can they stumble across? Um, so that was a challenge to try and mix it up for the fourth book. Um, but also as both Sarah and Catherine have said, I think, you know, I got, I know these characters now, like I know them well. And I think I really like writing their arcs. Um, in book four, Opulence and Ashes, uh, my main male protagonist, Daniel McCaffrey, he's dealing with a lot of sort of emotional stuff around these two worlds he inhabits, the sort of five points New York world of his youth and the um, opulent world he's in in his adulthood because he inherited this vast fortune unexpectedly. And now he has to sort of a social, he feels he has this social responsibility and he grapples with that a lot throughout the series. But I really, really narrowed down on that in book four because I wanted to keep exploring the characters and not have them um, become, you know, one dimensional as we kept moving forward. That's great um, information. And as a segue, they call it the Cabot Co syndrome. That's why no one wants to live where Jessica Fletcher is, because your odds of dying are greatly upped. Um, my next question kind of relates to this because it comes from the place of a reader and someone who's worked with readers in libraries and bookstores. How important when you're writing a series is it to make your new book accessible to someone who has not read the previous books in the series? How do you do that without making it seem like you have to start from book one? You know, for me, it was, uh, I went back in revisions and added a little bit of explanations for certain things, but you don't want to give away like who was murdered in the first book and, and yeah. who did it. So okay. it's, uh, you know, she'll give like a sentence, like, summarizing well this is my best friend and you know he's a movie star you know whatever so um and he recently did Broadway so I just try to put in little bits of ex of explanation Diane Freeman does a really good job with her Countess of Harley mysteries where you could pick up at any point and you'd be okay um so I uh you know I, I just try to follow <laughs> what I've seen other authors do. And, and cause you don't, you, you do, I want to tell people you can pick up the second book and you'll be fine. Cause you will, I do think you'll get more of her uh, emotional arc if you read from the beginning, but you don't have to read from the beginning. I really rely on my editor. <laughs> it turns out I didn't unwittingly rely on my editor to help with that. Um, sometimes she has called me out on over explaining things and sort of just that revealing too much, as you were saying, Sarah, she was like, yeah, maybe don't talk that much about what happened. Like either it's over explaining for people who have read the book or it's giving too much away for people who haven't read the book. So she's really helped me um, find a fine line between keeping it accessible to new readers. And I also rely on readers. Um, I don't tend to read very many reviews of my books. I feel like reviews are for readers and not for authors. Um, but, you know, I do sometimes close one eye and peek into Goodreads or, um, you know, I just I had a, a review from the Historical Novel Society just came out. And I'm usually one thing I have noticed is consistently readers have said you can't sort of what you said, you you'll get more if you start from book one, but you can jump in to 
to, to the later books. So um, it's actually, it's not something I've thought about a whole lot while I'm writing, um, but it has been pointed out to me and then edited for, <laughs> um, to make them more accessible. Yeah. I think it's a genre that actually lends itself really well to achieving that because you know, it, for most mysteries, the the main plot of the book is going to be self-contained. Most people aren't writing a mystery that's continuing over multiple books. Um, so that's already more accessible for readers. And I think there's, there, it, you know, people who are mystery readers, they're a little bit used to dipping in like that because a lot of times you will just go pick up the, the book that you find at the library or at the bookstore mm -hmm. and see, okay, I'm going to try this author out. Maybe it's not the first one in the series. So, you know, I think readers in the genre know that maybe they aren't going to get sort of the full emotional arc of the characters from the entire series, but they kind of, there's a lot of people who will accept that. They'll say like, okay, maybe I'm getting, you know, the, the overview of what's going on with these characters and then sort of the next stage in whatever, you know, best friend, romantic, father, daughter, whatever relationship they have. And I get to see that and appreciate it. And that might be enough to make me go pick up the previous one. So you do have to make it accessible, but I think the genre really helps you out there because readers are, are used to um, dipping in and out in a way that maybe in another, another genre they, that wouldn't be as common. Emily, anything from you before we move on? I mean, I come at it from someone who spends a or spent used to spend a lot of time on the internet and if someone's gonna go ah spoiler alert spoiler alert then I'll know just to delete the sentence like <laughs> you, you know people people are really sensitive to that much more than I actually am when I when I read or watch things I love spoilers I love to know how things end before I see it so I can connect the dots while I'm watching it and I it, I see everybody nodding. So that's really affirming to know, but people are really very sensitive to spoilers now, much more than I think they ever were before. And so I've had, like Kate said, my editor just say like, if you don't want to spoil this book for people, you might really want to delete this section. And it'll be like, ah, but I really like it. And it's funny. And it's a kind of joke in there. And she's just like, get rid of it. So I'll, I'll get rid of it. Fine. But like, I, I would love to actually put more breadcrumbs and things like that into my books. But I, I realized that that's not for the flavor of readers nowadays. So I don't do it as much as I would like to. Um, all of you have been writing now for a while. So my next question for you is what do you wish someone had told you about publishing and writing books that you didn't know when you were first starting out that would have been very helpful to you? As slow as you think it's going to be. It's <laughs> going to be slower. Yeah. Yeah. Hurry up and wait is a really good description of, of, publishing of, you know, you, you need your revisions back stat, but then there's going to be a nice lull before you get your next one. And again, like I understand it from a business perspective and, and the workflow perspective and the people who do 11 billion jobs for 40 million authors all at one time and just staffing is super low, but it's just, it, but it, there's a lot of just, you know, hurry up and then wait. <laughs> Just because you get an agent doesn't mean you'll sell your book. It's a great first step, but I see so many, you know, authors focused on just, I get the agent and then get the agent, get the agent, get the agent. And yes, of course you need to get the agent to get the rest, but then, you know, a lot of books die on sub 
and it's painful. And I don't think enough authors, it's not, I don't see it being discussed nearly as much as I think it could be. And the uh, writers community for, especially for newer writers, that's just a reality of publishing. You will get rejected. Even once you get the agent, there's more rejection. <laughs> you just have to develop a very thick skin. I think one thing that surprised me a lot was the way a book stops being yours once it's published, because writing it is such a deeply personal thing and putting it out into the world, whether you're sending it to an agent or it's going on submission or it's being published, like all of those feel so personal and vulnerable, but reading a book is a different experience from writing it. And anyone who picks it up and reads it, they're bringing so much of themselves to that experience that in a lot of ways it stops being entirely your book and there's a separate thing there's a separate thing that is their book and their reading experience and I think that's that's both a a really incredible thing because you're you're communicating with so many people that you've never met and they're creating their own experience out of it but it's also a very weird feeling in that this thing that is so personal to you is suddenly not not yours and you cannot control how people are going to respond to it or feel about it or interpret it even um which is why i think a lot of writers will e either stay completely away from reviews or maybe get into them in a way that they shouldn't because you you do want to have that conversation and try to explain where you're coming from but that's not that's not our job anymore our job is to to write the book that feels like the best thing you can put out at that time and that you feel proud of. And then you let readers make it their own. And I think that's, that's really incredible, but it was also a very surprising realization when I had my first book published and, and every time since then. That's wonderful. Um, let's take a slight detour. You all write mysteries. Now as readers, were you longtime mystery fans? Are there particular authors that made you think, wow, this is a genre I love? perhaps sometime in the future, I'd like to read it? Or do you read all over the map? What is your life like as readers? And I'll call on one if you, if you don't answer. <laughs> okay, so I'll go again. Um, I, yeah, I grew up with Nancy Drew, of course. I took all of them out from the library. Um, I didn't think about writing mysteries at first. My first book I ever wrote was A Crime Caper, which got me an agent. Um, I moved into mysteries when I got into Agatha Christie and I had, I met Nancy Cohen. She's a cozy mystery author. I met her at the Key West Mystery Fest and it was the first time anybody had explained to me what a cozy mystery was. And it's like, it's a mystery, but there's no sex violence or swearing on the page. And I was like, you mean like, kind of like Psych, the TV show, which I had loved. Um, and I sort of fell into a hole of like, this is a whole genre of books. I love this. This is, you know, I, I am so happy here. Uh, and that's why I decided to pursue that. I do read, um, like right now I'm working through all of Terry Pratchett's Discworld books. So I, I like that. And I like, uh, I don't read a lot of thrillers, but I do like Samantha Downing. So I'll read her. Um, oh, but I'm completely I, different from a cozy very different. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I do, I do a lot of cozies and I do a lot of, uh, sci-fi fantasy and then sometimes Samantha Downing. Went down three to go. I didn't realize until um, 
my parents actually pointed out to me recently, I thought I didn't grow up reading a lot of mysteries until they delivered this whole stack of, of mysteries that I'd read as a child, beginning with uh, Richard Scarry's Great Steamboat Mystery, which I learned how to read back when I had it as a book on tape. Um, so I, I think I grew up with mysteries being a little more formative in my reading life than I, I realized because I wasn't reading a lot of series. I read some Nancy Drew, but I didn't read a ton, you know, things like that. So it's just lots of one-off um, books that looking back, I realized were a lot of mysteries. Um, the way I really got into it was I used to watch a lot of like masterpiece theater with my parents on PBS. So like a lot of the whole old Miss Marple and Hercule Poirot and, and all of that, um, but I tend not to read mysteries when I'm writing one. Um, I, I'll read mysteries in between drafting or in between revisions. But if I have my own mystery happening in my head, I tend to read completely outside of that genre. So I'll read a lot of fantasy, a lot of science fiction, romance, literary fiction, basically anything um, that's not a straight mystery. Although you you discover once you read outside, there's a lot more genre overlap than than you know the library bookshelves the bookstore bookshelves might make it it seem but you have to you have to put books somewhere so they get divided up but I think a lot of things have some mystery to them well, I, I told you I fell into writing mysteries um I thought I was going to be a romance writer and I am so glad I'm not I'm much better love romance as a genre I don't read that much of it anymore but I appreciate it um I'm just better at writing murder than kissing I found and <laughs> I actually like it a lot better. I always found it very hard to write the, you know, the open door sex scenes in a romance and historical romance. Um, so yeah, I've always read incredibly voraciously across genre. Um, I don't know, if, I think mystery was just sort of part of that. It was folded in. Um, these days I read a lot of the one thing I don't read a lot right now is actually fantasy or sci-fi. Other than that, though, I tend I read a ton of thriller. Um, I'm I'm writing a lot more thriller now, so I read in a lot of I read a lot of thriller, and I read a lot of mystery. Um, when I started writing this series, I was really reading a lot of um, when I turned it into a mystery, a lot of the Veronica Speedwell um, mystery series, which I love. I love a series. Gosh, series make me so happy if I can like dive into a world and, um, you know, inhabit it book after book after book for a while. It just, it makes me so happy. That's part of why I wanted to write in series for sure. And that's, again, whether it's a mystery series or romance series, um, you know, even, even like little mini thriller series, like the Lisa Jewell, where she had the two that were back to back, um, recently that were just, that were, that, I loved that. I loved going back and revisiting the characters and seeing their world again. Yeah, I, I actually love mystery series and I didn't realize that again until I got all my childhood books from my parents because they didn't want to keep them in their house anymore. And it turns out that I loved the Babysitter's Club when I was a kid. And then it turns out that I owned all the mysteries and only like a handful of like the actual Babysitter Club, let's talk about taking care of kids books. But I had all the mysteries, every single last one of them. I was like, oh, I guess that was a thing. And then uh, I read, uh, and then there were none when I was in middle school. And I thought that was the most brilliant book I'd ever read in my life. And so after that, I really started focusing more on mysteries, but I didn't think I was ever going to be smart enough to actually write one because um, they're tricky. You know, the, you, you have to be careful and 
as you guys can tell, I'm a little bit of a chaos gremlin sometimes. And so I didn't think I was ever going to be able to do it. Um, and then I got really, really, really into Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries, both the television show and the book series. And my husband started su like surprising me with them. As soon as I finished one, he would have the next one and hand it to me. And it just became this really sweet thing that he did for a little while. Um, and so I kind of thought to myself, like, if I could write a series like this, who would I because it wouldn't be like a flashy rich girl in the 1920s. It would probably be a little bit closer to like the way my grandmother was in the 1940s and 50s and kind of like working class in, in New York. And then I was like, oh, I think I can do this. And so, uh, I, you know, I, I got the wheels greased by a husband who liked surprising me with books. <laughs> That's so sweet. Um, we're almost out of time, but before we have to let you all go, can you tell us as much as you want about what's coming next for you as an author and how we can learn more about you if you're on social media platforms? And we'll start with you, Emily. Um, so Viviana Valentine and the Ticking Clock is uh, my latest book. I, I, um, I have plot ideas for the next ones, but we will see if the series continues after this. Um, I am on all social media at Ms. Emily Edwards. I podcast uh, in my off times with a movie podcast called Ticklish Business and a book podcast called uh, F Boys of Literature. And uh, that's mostly what we do. And if you like funny, funny things, uh, that that's kind of where we go with, with all of my creative endeavors. What about you, Sarah? So The Socialite's Guide to Death and Dating is out now. It just came out last month. Um, up next for me in, I want to say May, but it's sometime in the first half of 2024. The crime caper that I wrote is coming out with Severn House. It's called Stolen Pieces. Um, you can, and I'll have the third uh, uh, Pinnacle Hotel series out in 2025. I'm working on that right now. Um, you can follow me at SK Golden Writes on Instagram. Uh, I'm there and Facebook and I'm sometimes on Twitter or whatever it's called. And my website is skgoldenrights.com. Oh, and if you sign up for my newsletter, you get a free short story. So well, that's yeah. incentive. Yeah. What about you, Kate? So Goth uh, the Gilded Gotham series um is up to date through book four with Opulence and Ashes that, um, like Sarah's, was just released last month um, in mid-October. And um, and like Emily, I have plot ideas for book five. I'm not sure if it will continue. We'll see. Um, but you can find out by following me also on social media. I'm Kate Belly Author on Instagram. Um, I'm not terribly active on Facebook, though there is something there. Instagram is the best place to find me or threads. And um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't have a Twitter slash X account anymore. So those other two places. Um, I have been writing contemporary thrillers of late, and I may have news about one that is set a uh, 2001 set contemporary. I don't know. Is that a historical or a contemporary these days? Right. That's a. It's kind of in between. I think kind of 50 years is the cutoff for historical. Mm -hmm. Okay, so whatever you want to call, whatever era you want to put that in, a 2001 set um, art world thriller that I'm I'm hoping to have news about soon. So stay tuned. Catherine? 
Um, as I mentioned sort of in passing earlier, I have two series. I have the Lily Adler Mysteries in Regency England and then the Nightingale Mysteries, which are set in Jazz Age New York City. Um, and I'll have books coming out in both series next year. Also, I do two books a year right now. Um, so the next Nightingale book, uh, The Last Note of Warning, will be out in June. And the next Lily Adler book, um, I think it was just titled A Scandal in Mayfair, I believe was this title we settled on. Um, and I don't have a pub date for that. I think it's September next year, but I would have to, to check, um, double check that with my with our publisher. Um, so, but I'll have books in both series coming out next year. And you can find me at katherineshellman.com where I also have a newsletter sign up where you can get a free short Lily Adler mystery as well. Um, and there's links to all my social media there. I'm most active, active on Instagram where I am at Catherine Writes. Great. I can't believe how quickly an hour has flown by. We've just been very fortunate to have with us at the Poisoned Hand virtually four amazing historical mystery writers. I'd like to thank Catherine, Kate, Sarah, and Emily for taking time to join us today. And I'd like to thank all of you for tuning in to another virtual author chat at the Poisoned Hand bookstore. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.